If you have a Bible, I would invite you to join me in Matthew chapter 13. Our Lord, we ask that you would disclose yourself and your ways to us today. Give us ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, we ask. And that means obedient hearts and souls. We ask for this outcome of you in your name, King Jesus. Amen. We have all either been the fool or observed the fool who is charging off in a direction that will take, take them right over a cliff to their own destruction. Now when it's us, we tend to find just wonderful, sensible reasons why this is a wise thing to do and why we will be that exceptional person who will escape the consequence that would fall upon everyone else. And then we live with the consequence, or if we're blessed, we live with the consequence. Sometimes we die with the consequence. Ladies and gentlemen, the universe that we live in was created by the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in consultation together, spoke out the universe. They spoke it into existence. In the prophet Isaiah, it says, how powerful is our God? Our God, the only time our God ever broke a sweat was when he was carrying the cross up Calvary. Because that was truly a massive work. The creation itself is called the finger work of God. That which we cannot even see the extent of with powerful uh, telescopes is called the mere finger work of God. Jesus going to the cross is called the exercise of his mighty right arm. Far more daunting, devastating to God than mere creation. But he is the creator God. And as the creator God, he has the authority, the right to determine what the rules will be in his creation not only the physical rules and the physical laws that our scientists seek to observe and make clear to themselves and to us, but also the moral laws, (coughs) the moral requirements. And he determines what the consequence is. Our God is holy, and we don't even know what that means which is a kindness, by the way, because I think if we really understood the full holiness of God, it would so devastate us that we would not even be able to continue 
but he is the holy God, and he has the authority that being the creator, the author of all things, grants to him. This is his creation, and he gets mama. This is Mother's Day. Who gets to establish the rules inside the house? Mama does. Mama does. The creator God sets the rules. Jesus is God the Son, true God of true God, fully God. He is fully God. When the blind man born blind come, finds Jesus, he worshiped him. Incessantly in the gospel narratives, we find people worshiping Jesus, worshiping Jesus, worshiping Jesus, and that's the word that is used. And Jesus never says, Stop. Jesus never says, Stop. Now, the Jewish leadership that are watching this are having a fit. They're throwing a fit. They brought a young man, as we've seen in, in Matthew's Gospel, they had brought a young man on a cot who was paralyzed and set him before Jesus. Obviously, their principal idea is they're seeking healing. And Jesus says to the young man, Son, be very happy. Your sins are forgiven. And the Jewish leaders are there in their minds. They're saying, and this is in the Matthew text, blasphemy. Blasphemy who has the right to forgive sins but God. And Jesus turns to them and says, in order that you might know that the Son of Man, which is their favorite term for Messiah, has the authority on earth to forgive sins, to do the invisible thing that only God can do, I will now do a visible thing that only God can do. Rise, take up your bed, and go home. And immediately the paralytic stood up, rolled up his cot, and took it home. And the Jewish leaders are, he has the authority. And then he would serve us. What is our biggest problem? We, every single descendant of Adam, is a sinner. We are sinners by nature, and we keep racking up a record of sinful deeds, sinful thoughts, sinful whatever. And it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And Jesus came in order to solve our unsolvable problem. He went to a cross. The Father sent him to do this and he agreed to do it and we don't even know what torture that represented because the, we, we can see Jesus was nailed to a cross we can see that they had the crown of, he had the crown of thorns pushed down on his head we know that the soldiers of Herod Antipas beat his face we know that he had the flesh ripped off of his back with, by the Roman soldiers with a cat of nine tails. We know of all these things that our eyes can see, but that's not even 1%. When he was nailed to that cross and once he was up there, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you for, forsaken me? And it was at that point that God the Father began to judge God the Son, become a man so that he could do this, he became 
the second Adam. He's called both the second Adam and the last Adam. He became the representative for the entire fallen sinful human race. And God the Father judged him in our place, poured out on him all of the lake of fire. And eternity in the lake of fire for the whole human race was poured out on Jesus on that cross. And then he cried out, it is finished, it is paid in full. He got it done. That completely frees his Holy Father to forgive us. All we have to do to derive the benefit of what Jesus did on the cross is say to God, I believe that testimony. I believe that message that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is in fact your son. He in fact took the place I deserved on that cross. He took the judgment I deserve so that you would be free to forgive me. Please do that. And God's promise is if you ask, I will do that. What do you suppose God the Father feels when that person who could receive that benefit says, no thanks, I don't need that. I'm perfectly content that you judge me on my own performance. The Father who sacrificed His Son to deliver you, to deliver me, and then that 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 sacrifice, that pain, is rejected? That benefit that would come to me, is I, I, I just reject that? I disdain that? Let me tell you, folks, you are going to have one angry God. Rightfully angry God. He has done everything that can be done to deliver you, and you just throw it back in His face. Matthew 13 Verse 24, Jesus is speaking to them in parables. And as we've gone through Matthew's gospel, what have we seen? Jesus has spoken plainly, 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 plainly. And lots and lots and lots of people have been hearing the plain message and receiving the plain message. But there have been others who have not received it, especially the Jewish leadership. And so Jesus begins in chapter 13, to speak to them in parables. Something that actually would protect those who are not going to receive the benefit of the message. It keeps the message unclear because they don't really want to hear it anyways. And so as we looked last week, we looked at the parable of the sower, and that's the first parable that Jesus gives them. And our message last week was, what kind of soil are we? Are we the roadside? Are we the rocky soil? Are we the thorn-infested soil that chokes off the word? Or are we the kind of soil where the seed, seed lands on us and grows up and becomes fruitful? And frankly, folks, you get to choose what kind of soil you are. And then his disciples come to him and say, why are you speaking to them in parables? And he explains why. 
It's really to protect those who otherwise wouldn't respond anyways. So they will be less responsible for their non-response. And then he goes on and gives the par- parable. He explains the parable of the sower, but now he, ex- he gives them the parable of the wheat and the tares. And let me tell you, folks, Jesus will give this parable. He will explain this parable. And if this doesn't curl your hair, this doesn't curl your hair. Maybe we can grow some hair. There. If this doesn't curl your hair, there's something wrong. Matthew 13, 24, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in, the, in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. But let both, but both, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then he explains this parable beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away, went into the house, and his disciples said to him, came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. Let me stop right here. Look at the church. I'm talking about the church in the broadest sense. Anybody that puts the word church on the front of their building or parades around in this world claiming to be a representative of Jesus or a follower of Jesus And many of them, obviously, are authentic disciples. Many of those ministries are authentic ministries. They are truly seeking to authentically, accurately represent who Jesus is and what he's done and what he said. But there are many who do not. Just yesterday, I had a conversation with my son-in-law who went to an event at a mosque beside the University of Texas campus in Austin. And he said there was a imam there, and there was a rabbi there. We're not next to the University of Texas campus, you know. And there was a Methodist minister there, and there was a Buddhist priest there. And they all talked about how they just love each other. And the Methodist minister said, Oh, I know. You've heard of those statements from Jesus. Like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. But that's taken out of context. And really, God is going to welcome everybody. And my son-in-law apologized. He said, I was so struck. 
I was so stunned. I should have stood and renounced that man publicly. That man who claimed to be a representative of Jesus was lying baldly, bald-faced lie about Jesus. No, there's no question. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me is not an out-of-context statement. He claimed to be the only way. And in fact, what kind of cruel God would we have that would send his son to a cross to pay sin's penalty for the human race as a way of welcome to him? That would be a horribly cruel God. That man is a tear. The ministry he represents is not authentic. And there are people, it's always important, every congregation, for everyone to ask themselves. I've, believe me, I have heard of many, many, many men who were ordained ministers who didn't get saved, who didn't become truly redeemed followers of God until into their professional ministry. They weren't, they th many of them thought they were real because they had gone through certain rituals and, and regimens that had been, they had been told, well, if you do, do this, if you voice these words, if you go through this ritual, then you will be... It's not words, it's not rituals, it's authentic faith in the work of Jesus. It's the work of Jesus. And so we look around at the so-called church today, and if you're looking at it through Bible lenses, there's so much of it that has nothing to do with what we find in the Scripture. It's the opposite. And in fact, it directs people away from redemption, authentic redemption, and welcome with God. What does Jesus say about this? Again, verse 36, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. If you are sharing the gospel with someone, or if you're watching an evangelist on television or whatever it is, let me tell you who the real speaker is. It's Jesus. He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. That's their favorite term for Messiah. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man is the representative man before God. The field is the world. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. And they're growing up together in one field. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, <coughs> therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, 
and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend (coughs) and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. There is a hell to flee. Now, a lot of people would hear what Jesus just said and say, well, don't you think that's a little bit harsh and a little bit over the top? No, I am the creator God. I am paying sin's penalty for you on the cross. How would you feel if you had given your child to benefit to carry the punishment that someone else was due so that you'd be free to forgive them and then they disdained it? You haven't seen white-hot anger such as that will arouse from the Father who loves the Son. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you and I have ears to hear? He's not asking, do we have physical ears attached to the side of our head? He's asking, do you have a heart, do you have a mind that will allow you to accept this message? And yes, God the Holy Spirit is present here to give you that willing acceptance. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a reason, there is a hell to flee. And that needs to be part of our message. That needs to be part of our message. Our God takes himself and his son seriously. About three years ago, we had a man here that spoke just very, very briefly in his mid-80s. He's probably pushing 90 by now, Kemper Crab. And I remember one of the brief accounts I heard about his ministry there in India. Retired Texas football coach, went to India, ministry beside Mother Teresa, who nominated him three times for the uh, Nobel Peace Prize. He said, I'm the biggest loser of the Nobel Peace Prize in world history. They ministered together. And he established a couple of orphanages to help the children, uh, the untouchables and the low-caste children that were just cast away. And he went and he's in, I believe it was New Delhi, and he picked up this little girl, about a three-year-old girl. He was going to rescue her and take her. And a Hindu Brahmin priest charged up to him, pulled out his sword, and took that girl's head right off as he's holding her. And he turned to that man as he's holding this carcass, pointed at him and said, you are going where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And two unexpected things happened. That man fell dead right now at his feet. And then he had a vision of Jesus holding that little girl on his lap. God takes himself and his son seriously. 
seriously. Kemper Crabb said, that surprised me. I didn't expect. Why? God is serious. He had sent this man to India to be a rescuer because God loves those children. He loves us. He loves our loved ones whom we love. He loves God so loved, Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That only begotten phrase means the heir of everything. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In 1 John 2, 1 and 2, the Apostle John says, My little children, writing to disciples, My little children, these things I write to you that you might not sin. That's good advice. Stop sinning. And if anyone sins, we, so he's including himself, have an advocate, a defense attorney with the Father. I'll take Jesus as my defense attorney. Even Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation, that's a fancy word for satisfaction, who is the satisfaction for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. We can authentically say to every single human being who's ever drawn a breath, Jesus died for you. He's paid sin's penalty for you. Will you simply accept that benefit? As we come to the Lord's table, one of the things that Jesus says in the upper room is this is the new covenant in my blood. Let me read you the new covenant. The new covenant was first expressed 600 years before Jesus' birth through the prophet Jeremiah. And it's as easy to remember. Jeremiah 31, 31. Let's say that. Jeremiah 31, 31. Okay, you can look it up yourself later or look at it now in your lap. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Number one, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will change you in your nature. I will make you a willing hearer of the word and recipient and obeyer of the word. And number two, I will be their God and they will be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, No, the Lord, they won't have to evangelize. Because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. And number three, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. 
I will forgive your iniquity. I will, I will, I will. Where is the, and you will, and you will, and you will. There is none. I will, I will, I will forgive. And we will be in this relationship. Mount Sinai, what came down off of Mount Sinai? The Ten Commandments that condemned them. What is the new covenant? It is the new contract, the new covenant creates the welcoming relationship. Creates the welcoming relationship. And that's what we are, is what we are commemorating here at the Lord's table. Is this commemorating this relationship that is the proof positive to us. We're reenacting that, la- that last element of the Last Supper to commemorate the reality of what Jesus would accomplish just a few hours later from then on the cross where he would say, it is finished. It is paid in full. It is paid in full. Your debt of sin has been paid.